Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture. We are a non-profit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This presentation and many others are available through our online library at instituteofcatholicculture.org and on our ICC app. Whether you are looking for weekly Bible studies, in-depth courses, or talks related to the faith, you will find it at the ICC. Please check out our upcoming schedule of live online events and engage with us on social media. All are welcome to join our growing international ICC family. For handouts, links, and further study materials, please visit this program's page on our website or app. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things. The treasury of blessings and the giver of life, come and dwell within us. Cleanse us of all stain and save our souls, O good one. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our speaker this evening is a prominent scholar of Catholicism in China and Chinese culture and history. Dr. Anthony Clark received his PhD from the University of Oregon, studied at National Taiwan Normal University in Taipei as a Fulbright scholar, and also studied at Minzu University of China in Beijing. He is currently a professor of Chinese history in the Edward B. Lindemann Endowed Chair at Whitworth University, the Distinguished Coombe Trust Fellow at the University of Edinburgh, and an elected fellow at the Royal Historical Society in London. He is a prolific writer of scholarly and popular works with titles such as China's Saints, Catholic Martyrdom During the Qing, Heaven in Conflict, Franciscans in the Boxer Uprising in Shanxi, and China's Catholics in an Era of Transition. So please join me in welcoming for his first lecture here at the Institute of Catholic Culture, Dr. Anthony Clark. Welcome, Doctor. Blessing to have you with us tonight. Thank you. Father Hezekiah, I should just say, if you notice how I say the sign of the cross, you'll know what rite of the church I oh, am. Oh, really? And my parish when I live in Rome is uh, Santa Maria and Cosmodin which is awesome. Melkite and is incredible. And I studied briefly at St. Joe Methodius. So I think you studied there also. So we both know about the bowling alley in the basement. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful, <laughs> doctor. That's great. That's great. Well, blessing to have you with us. So yeah, let me just sort of begin first by saying, I just am so blessed to be part of this. Uh, it's nice to have you all in my office. If you were here, you would smell the coffee. Um, I, it's my favorite smell, actually, that and incense during divine liturgy. Let me just begin uh, by saying that one of the things I think that makes me particularly happy about talking about East Asian philosophy and religion, and we'll, we'll talk about this concept of religion, is that about 60 to 70 percent of our world is, is demographically Asian. It's something that um, we don't often think about, especially as college professors in a university context, we often forget you know, we study so much about the West. Sometimes we study the Middle East, but so little of our attention is given to East Asia. So if 60 to 70% of our world is Asian, then it's, then it's, I think, accurate to say that 
to acknowledge really that the majority of humanity today is more influenced by Asian ideas and Asian religions, if we want to use that word, than, than they are from Judeo-Christian ideas or even sort of even Western early philosophers like Socrates, Plato. Um, so it's important to, to note that Asia is really represents our largest demographic. And I would argue that at the end of the day, at the end of the day, more people are influenced by the philosophy, the philosophy of life proposed by Confucius than any other thinker. And hopefully I can make that point here in a minute, but let's put up the first slide because I'd like to begin with a few images of a Chinese temple. Uh, and this temple is in Shanxi province. I visit there quite a lot. It's a beautiful, beautiful temple. Um, I often teach uh, lectures around this temple. It's a temple in Chinese called the, the Xuankongsi, which means the hanging temple. And you can see why it's, pro it's, it's called the hanging temple. It's a temple built on a cliff about 240 feet above the ground. It was first constructed about 1,500 years ago. And this temple is dedicated to what we might call China's three teachings. The Chinese for that is San Jiao, the three teachings. Confucianism, Taoism, and Buddhism. And, you know, to keep myself on track, I've written a bunch of notes here, so you might hear my paper uh, crumbling a bit. But this hanging temple has three main halls, one with the statue of Confucius, one with the statue of the Buddha, and one with the statue of Lao Tzu. That is, the three main halls of this temple represent Confucianism, Taoism, and Buddhism. And the point I want to make, you know, as we sort of ease into being more specific about Confucianism, Taoism, Buddhism, is that the three teachings represent an important trait of East Asian religious and intellectual practice. That is, belief, and I, this is the, the, the metaphor I use with my class, belief is more like a salad bar than a single entree dish. That is, typical Chinese religious believers are comfortable believing in any and all religions one finds appealing or useful. And Father Hezekiah sort of alluded to that early on, right? This idea of a kind of syncretic thing. Is it okay to, to practice yoga, for example? Um, and I, I've given lectures on yoga at a Mount Angel Seminary. We had some robust debates about that. Um, me sort of suggesting that it's probably a better idea to go home and, and recite the Jesus prayer. But um, so the, my point then is that syncretism, combining religions and philosophies in the East Asian culture is really assumed. I want to start with that, right? Um, I, I like to think of, and I tell my students this, if you look at a, a typical Chinese person's sort of spiritual religious belief, it, it looks like a salad bar in that you have Confucian carrots, Taoist peas, and Buddhist celery. The doctrinal requirements of Christianity have been historically challenging in Asia, right? The Chinese impulse, the Chinese impulse when Christianity entered into China, the Chinese impulse really was to maybe add an extra hall to the, the temple, and that extra hall would have a statue of Jesus in it, right? So let's go to the next slide. But I just want to say that this eclectic way of approaching belief has been commonly depicted in Chinese paintings for more than a millennia at least. So if you look at this painting, you have Confucius in the middle, you have the Buddha to the left, 
And then you have in the sort of to the right, kind of in the front bottom there, you have Lao Tzu. All three of these are the progenitors of these three teachings, the so-called San Jiao, Confucianism, Ru Jiao, Taoism, Tao Jiao, and Buddhism, Fo Jiao. Since Confucianism focuses on public life, and I'll be more specific in a minute, but since Confucianism focuses on public life, Taoism on private life, and uh, Buddhism on the afterlife, there's a very common Chinese saying, quote, be a Confucian, be a Confucian to succeed in the world, a Taoist when the world is difficult, and a Buddhist when you are near death. So let's go to the last the last slide. So you can be all three of these things, right? So I want to just interrogate this word religion, because first off, you know, I should I should dilate on this because when we think about religion, we often think about religion within the context of our Western way of thinking. For those of us who are Western, even Middle Eastern way of thinking, uh, especially within the the context of Christianity, we tend to to use the term religion or philosophy when discussing belief systems or intellectual schools of thought. I mean, we just use the word religion or philosophy rather easily. But one of the big problems that missionaries encountered when they first arrived in China, especially the first missionaries to China, who were not Jesuits, by the way, the first missionaries in China, well, the very, very first missionaries in in China were the so-called Church of the East. We sometimes call them Nestorians, uh, were Eastern Christians, uh, who were followers of Nestorius, and um, there's some great debates about what what their um, what their Christology is, how they view the Trinity. Uh, but then, certainly, the first Catholic missionaries were Franciscans, and one of the problems they encountered was that when they tried to translate just the simple word religion for them into Chinese, they rightly concluded that there is no word in Chinese, and there still is no word in Chinese. They've had to create special terms to convey Christian ideas that have taken centuries to really um, embed into the psychology of what we might think of as sort of the standard East Asian thinker of what we think of as a belief system, right? So uh, the word religion, which is Anglo-French, suggests that if you look at the old definition, it suggests piety, devotion or a community under a certain rule. Latin texts in the church started to use the word religionem, which is they often defined in the medieval period, even before the medieval period, as, quote, respect for what is sacred or reverence, reverence for a god or gods. So religion in the Catholic church is often attached to this respect for God, respect for, and, and if we talk about other religions, we talk about their veneration for gods. Eventually, it really suggested um, someone living a monastic life or someone in an order who was attached to a certain rule. China has nothing quite like that, right? The word in China, but the closest thing we have in in China is the word jiao. So when when we talk about the three teachings, the san jiao, um, we're talking about these lines of thought, these lineages that have nothing to do specifically with any kind of divine being. They can, they might, they might not. So if you look at the character there next to the word Jiao, it's comprised of, and I'll be very brief here, it's comprised of three parts. The, the, the sort of top left element represents a roof. 
the part right under it. It might be very small on your screen, but if you could see it blown up, it looks like a three with a line through it. That represents a child. And then the, the section to the right actually is a kind of pictographic representation. In you know, Originally, it looked more like this, but it's a pictographic representation of a person, a teacher with legs spread out holding a stick. And that stick is sort of hitting the student um, to try and keep the student from forgetting what the teacher has taught. Uh, and so I think the important thing that in China, when they talk about jiao, they're talking about uh, they're talking about a teaching. More importantly, that's something that you have inherited, something that has been transmitted to you, uh, that you are part of a lineage of. It's nothing to do with a god per se, but it's the lineage within you, with, with within which you fit. So let me just say when we talk about the three teachings, Christians in China, Christians clearly understand that they believe in God. They clearly understand that there is a creator. And we can talk about this idea of a creator in a moment. But still, even Christians in China, when you ask them, are you a Christian? You know, are you a Christian? They'll often say, I am a third generation. Or I'm a fifth generation. So even within Chinese Christianity, you will very seldom hear a Christian say, oh, I'm a Christian. They will say, oh, I'm third generation. I'm fourth generation. So the concept of being part of an inherited line even has its holdover within um, Chinese Christianity. So, so I just want to just first begin with this point, right? We can return to this later because clearly... Chinese Christians believe in the same faith that, that other Christians believe in. But this idea of religion uh, in the Western sense, even today, is a, is a complicated term. Let's go to the next slide and just hold it for a second. So you'll see an image of Confucius. He's got this bulbous forehead to represent his, his intelligence. Um, and then just look briefly at, at the, the names, Confucius, Mencius, and Shunzi. And note all note also that they are they're far before the life of Christ. I mean, uh, an interesting scholar named Kaspar mentioned that this era was called the Axial Age. This era of Confucius, Mencius, and Shunzi is the same time where you have the Buddha, where you have Plato, Socrates, and Aristotle. All of those thinkers are living in about the same moment, which is a kind of interesting historical fact. And then let me just say a few things about Confucianism uh, in general. And I and I like to do this because first the first thing I would like to say is that if if you look at the word Confucius, that does that word doesn't exist in Chinese. Actually, the word China doesn't exist in Chinese. Um, the word China and Confucius are both words that Jesuits used when they wrote reports home to talk about the, this these belief systems, these philosophical systems, and these people they were encountering in Chinese texts. So they. The, the, the person they read about in Chinese is Kong Fuzi, Kong Fuzi. And when they read about this, of course, they couldn't write home back to Europe in Chinese. So they wrote about Confucius as the Latinized version of Kong Fuzi. And then they recognized that the first empire in China's history was the Qin Empire. So they assumed, well, if that's this ancient dynasty, let's call China, let's name it after the Qin. Qin'a. 
in China, they call their own country Zhongguo, which means the central kingdom. So, uh, so it's interesting if you look at the Chinese athletes in the Olympics, it'll say China, which is a Jesuit word, by the way. And then you'll see below it, Zhongguo, which is their own language. So the word for Confucian in Chinese is Ru. We, you can write it as R-U. And it literally means people who are soft. They're soft people because they read books. My students, you know, they ask me if I get any exercise. And I say I get plenty of exercise. I turn pages. So I have a little bit of a belly, which I call book muscle. Um, so I have book muscle. And, and that I'm the perfect you know, visual of a rule of a Confucian because I read a lot, I teach, and I'm, I'm rather soft. Now, um, so Confucius, let's, to be very brief here, because I, I, I'm going to try and end here by, by, um, uh, by a quarter tell. I, I know I can do it. So I want to open up for questions. But Confucius was an intellectual who traveled around China during a period wherein China was brutally... Uh, turbulent. Um, the po political landscape was collapsing. It was very, very violent. It's an era wherein Chinese were writing a lot of poetry about how depressing it was. You know, there was chaos in the city. Uh, not only was there chaos in the city, but no one agreed with one another. So Confucius was one of those intellectuals who traveled around and tried to try to become a kind of salve to a society that was that was in chaos. He traveled around for 13 years. He's the first person we know of in history who accepted students publicly. I mean, Aristotle, uh, Plato, Socrates, and other teachers didn't just accept anyone, but Confucius was a public teacher. Uh, and he basically tried to convey a, a set of moral virtues. And I think this is the key to understanding Confucianism, a system of moral virtues that were expected to transform people into socially benevolent members of a socially harmonious society. He really believed that people had to be benevolent. And by making people, by teaching them to be benevolent, they would thus become part of a cohesive and, and socially harmonious society, right? The two most important virtues. So if you if you were to read the, the texts uh, about Confucius or the Analects of Confucius, which is a collection of his sayings, uh, there are two terms that appear more than any other term. One term is, is ren, R-E-N, if you want to write it in English, and the other is li, L-I, and they mean benevolence and ritual. So Confucianism is a philosophical system that is based upon teaching benevolence as a virtue and ritual as a virtue. There are other ones, teaching, that's a virtue, or learning is a virtue. I mean, the first thing Confucius says in the Analects is xue, he says study. Study is the first word out of Confucius's mouth. Go and learn. Um, and, and then he says, and then to learn more, isn't that a great joy? And then after he says, go out and learn, Confucius says, but another thing that makes you happy is having friends come to visit. So you can't just study all the time. You have to have friends. And then finally, he says, when people don't appreciate you and you're okay with that, that's a great virtue too. So the Analects of Confucius begins with the virtue of study, the virtue of friendship, and the virtue of being able to be good courageously, right? That is when people, when you should never be vexed when people don't like you because you do the right thing. Now, 
this is key, right? So those two benevolence and 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 uh, ritual are are key. So I, the character for benevolence is comprised of two parts. It's a picture of a person, and then the Chinese character for two. And it, when you put those two characters together, person and two, that means Zhen, benevolence. So an underlying assumption in Confucianism, and I want to just pause to make this point very clear, an underlying assumption in Confucianism is that to be truly human is to be in a relationship with other people. The relational aspect of who we are is key. So it's a very, very public social philosophical system. And ritual, ritual is meant to give people a, a way to mitigate how we interact with each other. I, I like to, with my students, and of course, you know, uh, here at the university, we were very careful with distancing and all of that. One of the things I love so much is shaking hands with people. I love this. Um, it's just a wonderful way to connect. And, you know, I walk up to students, you know, when I talk about Confucianism and I say, you know, what would happen if for the first time we met, we had no ritual behavior? We didn't know what to say. We had no way to shake hands or, or say hello. We might just stare at each other awkwardly and have nothing to say. We might just sort of kind of drool and look at one another. And, and the point being that Confucianism believes in relationship, but it also has this knowledge that humanity doesn't quite know how to behave all the time. Not that Confucianism has a notion of original sin, and Father Hezekiah and I might have a nuanced ways to talk about that as Eastern Christians. But my, my point here is that ritual is that thing that that those rituals that keep us that keep us kind of um, properly behaved that it gives us a sense of propriety. So relationship propriety these are very key points, right? And then the other thing, if benevolence is one of the key um, ideas that is expressed in the teachings of Confucius. One of the things his students ask him in text over and over again is, uh, they call him master. They say, master, what is benevolence? You know, give us a little more information about this thing you say is the most important thing. And in the Analects of Confucius, uh, one of his students named Zigong asks him, can you tell me what one word, give me one word that will describe or summarize everything you're teaching us fundamentally if benevolence can be described in one word, what is it? And Confucius looks at him and he says, it is perhaps the word shu, not S-H-O-E, shu. It's, it's a Chinese term, and I'll give you what it means in a minute. It is the word shu. And when pressed, what does shu mean? Confucius says, shu means do not impose on others what you would not yourself desire. So when Confucius said, let me encapsulate everything in my teaching. It's this, don't do to other people what you wouldn't yourself like. Now, when Catholic missionaries went to China and they're trying to figure out which of these three teachings are we most aligned with, they read that passage and, and they said, that's it. If Jesus, and what is it, Matthew 17, 12, if Jesus says, um, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, and Confucius kind of inverts it, right? and says, do not do unto others as you would not desire, they're aligned because they're basically saying the precisely the same thing. So 
the teachings of Confucius and the teachings of Jesus were very frequently aligned. And so the, the Catholic missionaries, and I think rightly, identified Confucianism as that school that they could uh, identify with. They actually wore Confucian outfits uh, when they traveled around China. Um, it, some people call Jesus's rule the golden rule and Confucius's rule the silver rule. So you'll sometimes you'll sometimes hear that, right? Now, um, I want to end uh, my my description of Confucianism is spending a bit more time with Confucianism because it's the most pervasive of the three teachings in China. But I want to end with, with two other teachers, right? So just like when Jesus died and the apostles went out and taught, and as sacred scripture was being compiled and written, that is the sacred scripture, not, not the Hebrew Bible, but the Christian texts, there wasn't always agreement. And this is the interesting thing, right? I ask my students, uh, I frequently ask my students, uh, if please find a book by Jesus and that would just solve everything. And this is what the, the apostles and the disciples wrote the text that became sacred scripture. Uh, and, and the students sort of ponder that. What would happen if, for example, my students were to write about what I teach after I die? They would probably argue a bit. Now, we also... We also know that the authority, with the authority of Scripture is inspired under the Holy Spirit. So there's that, right? But there certainly is debate. And, and the fact that I teach at a university with both Protestants and Catholics and Orthodox, we don't always agree about things. I think the core things we do. But there are two teachers in Confucianism that absolutely disagree. And that was the teacher Mencius and the teacher Shunza. Shunza is often spelled in English X-U-N-Z. Mencius and Shunzi were part of the debate. And the debate was, what is human nature at birth? That was the great Confucian debate. If, if benevolence is the rule, if benevolence is the goal, then the way we educate people should be, uh, it should emphasize a method of educating them based upon whether or not they're born wicked or born good. Mencius believed that human beings are born good. We're all born good. And when asked what his proof was, Mencius said, if a person is walking by a well and a child suddenly starts to fall into the well, people grab the child and save the child's life. And they don't have enough time to premeditate. I grab the child because I want a reward from the parents. Or I grab the child because I don't like the sound of the child screaming as it falls down the well. Uh, or I grab the child because I want praise in the village. The reality is, Mencius says, we grab someone who's suffering because we do it like sort of spontaneously, not because we want a reward, but because there's something good within us in, at birth. Shunza, of course, didn't agree. He said that all humans are born evil. And when someone asked him, uh, well, what about the fact that people desire good? Shunza said, well, don't poor people desire to be wealthy? And don't ugly people desire to be beautiful? Uh, isn't it true that we, we all desire that which we do not have? So the desire to be good means that we are basically evil. And for Mencius and Shunza, they became the core thinkers of how to apply Confucianism. Mencius thought we were born good. Shunza thought we were born evil. And depending upon what school of Confucianism you ascribed uh, or you, you belong to, you taught differently. People who studied uh, under the Shunz, under Shunza's system, were often uh, 
just you had to memorize texts in brutal ways because they believe that you're evil. You have to be forced into being good. But let me just say the key thing to bear in mind is that Confucianism is deeply social, deeply committed to the project of study and learning, and very formal. So let's go to the next slide, the, the slide for Taoism. Now, if we just look at this, first you see you see this image. This is an image of Lao Tzu. Uh, the thing about Lao Tzu is that he probably, I, mean, I would say as a scholar, I would argue he didn't exist. He was a legendary figure, but he's viewed, the word Lao Tzu means the old master. So he's viewed as the progenitor, the founder of the Taoist uh, philosophical system. And then Zhuangzi, who is a beautiful writer, was later, and he wrote probably the first essays on how to be a Taoist, how to think as a Taoist. So, um, and this is a, a famous painting of Lao Tzu getting on his ox and traveling to the West and escaping the world. And on his way to the West, he paused and he wrote down a text called the Tao Te Ching, the way, the classic of the way in the virtue. So let's Let's close this slide. So Taoism, in a nutshell, is a rejection of the social rules and ideals of Confucianism. Taoism is the foil against all the formalities of the Confucian scholarly elite. It's Tao, if, if the Confucians are teachers in bow ties and round glasses in libraries, then the, the Taoists are people who reject all of that. They're gonna go surfing um, because they reject all these, these formal structures. If Confucianism emphasized the public, the social, and the political, Taoism emphasizes the private, the antisocial, and the non-political. The key term in Taoism is the, is the word Tao. Um, I wrote it down. Um, I don't know if you can even see the word Tao, that's the character. The word Tao means the way. Um, and the complicated thing about, about this word is it, it means a path. It means a way. It also means a system. So the term Tao, I mean, the whole philosophical system is called Tao Jiao, the teaching of the Tao, of the way. So the whole key to apprehending Taoism is to apprehending is to understanding that that term is was also used by all of other all of China's other philosophical systems. It's used in Buddhism. It's used in Confucianism. They all use the word Tao to describe their particular way of viewing reality. So the word Tao uh, means something like for Confucians, it means a body of teachings. It means the virtues of the Confucian school. So for a Confucian. If I teach you the Tao, you can get it. You understand it. You've, you can take a test on it. You know that the Tao is benevolent, it's ritual, it's learning, it's courageousness, it's filial piety. You can pass the test. But for Taoists, everything about every other school, and this is, this is where it gets a bit, a bit tricky. So I'm, I'm going to challenge everyone here to kind of think in a, in a very early Chinese way, to think in a way that's outside of the boxes that we're accustomed to thinking in. For a Taoist, the word Tao is ineffable, which means it, it cannot be named, it cannot be described. The word Tao is an ontological truth. 
And this ontological truth is, is, um, is very complicated. So this is the very first line of the Tao Te Ching. This is the text, the text that Lao Tzu, uh, according, according to tradition, wrote. And um, this is a very old version of it. So I want to read you the first line in Chinese, translate it for you, and then tell you precisely why Taoism uh, is complicated and why missionaries, Catholic missionaries especially, just said no <laughs> to Taoism. Um, and here's the here's here's how it reads. The whole book is like a kind of um, if you read the whole Tao Te Ching in Chinese, you almost feel like you're going into a trance because it's almost like word magic. It's poetry. It has a certain cadence. So the Tao Te Ching opens like this. Dao ke dao, fei chang dao. Ming ke ming, fei chang ming. And think of the whole text sort of doing that, right? So you read 5,000 characters in that way. Dao ke dao, fei chang dao. The thing about Chinese is that a verb can also be a noun. A noun can be an adjective. I mean, you can grammatically change any word into whatever you want it to be, which means Chinese can be very complicated to read. And the Tao Te Ching really exploited that flexibility with language. So if you, if the book begins, I don't even know if you can see, um, but it begins with the character Tao, right by my finger. It says Tao Ke Tao. The word Ke means can. So you have the way, can, way. And how we would, English translations are, are typically horrible, but what it really means is the way that can be and make the way into a verb, wade, is not the constant way. So in Chinese, I can say north. And I can also say, wobei, I'm northing, or I'm easting. So you can be that flexible with the language itself. Or you can say, wo, wo, I am I-ing, I'm selfing. So you can really be flexible. So what the, what the Tao Te Ching is saying in its first line, and this is key, the way... That, that can be weighed is not the, 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 the constant way because for Taoists, the way is the truth. And the truth, to be the truth, now bear with me for a second, because this is why I have a lot of problems with how the, 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 the Gospel of John begins with the, the in the beginning was the Tao. When, when, when translators translate as the Tao, maybe... You can do that, but you have to you have to have a lot of commentary. So when you read Chinese Bibles, um, there's a there's a translation where the the word was made flesh. The Tao was made flesh. I have a problem with that. Here's why: the Tao, according to Taoism, is the truth. But just like in order to have day, you must have night. In order to have good, you must have evil. In order to have male, you must have female. In order to have up, you must have down. In order to have fire, you must have water. Whatever you describe as a thing, it must have its opposite to be that thing. Nothing can exist without its opposite. So for Taoists, the Tao includes both the Tao and the not Tao, the truth and the not truth. So what Taoists are fundamentally saying is that they're fighting against Confucians. It's like postmodernism on steroids. In fact, people like Michel Foucault and Jacques Derrida, who were the kind of progenitors of postmodernism, they were reading these Taoist texts. They loved the text Zhuangzi because it kind of represents this playfulness with language that Taoists really enjoyed. So what the Tao is, is it's everything. It's everything that has to do with its opposite. So Taoists 
absolutely reject the Christian idea that God is all good. It's not a possibility. Um, they reject the idea of an origin or a created uh, a created moment that can't exist for, for Taoists. And they couldn't stand that Confucians said that this is truth, because for Taoists, they thought that truth had to include truth and non-truth. I, I know this is complicated, but this is the fundamental message in, in Taoism, right? The way is both the way and the not way. And it, it, it believed at its core, and here I'll, I'll, I'll end um, my description of Taoism. Taoism believed at its core that whenever you're taught right and wrong, you're being removed from your nature. And your nature is whatever you are without all the, uh, the things that you, that you learn, right? Learning corrupts you. Whatever you are naturally is, is, is better than whatever you are once you learn. So Taoism is a, a, a very rich philosophy, but the missionaries, when they finally got what's happening, they're like, uh-uh, this isn't, this isn't going to work. So there, there are two fundamental Taoists. There's Lao Tzu, the so-called founder of Taoism, and there's Zhuangzi. I told you about Zhuangzi. He's a kind of relativist with a small r. He believes that there is a truth, but he also Zhuangzi also believes that none of us can ever get at it, right? Um, and at 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 of uh, the best way of interpreting um, the best way of interpreting Taoism, uh, I think, would be uh, from a Christian point of view is that um, there's a truth out there like the, the Blessed Trinity, and we can talk about it, but we're not going to actually get it, right? Um, we, can, we, can, we can have an orthodox and a heterodox view of the Trinity, but we're not going to really get what the Blessed Trinity is. So some Christian theologians in China like to, to recast the Tao in that way. But when you call Jesus the Tao, um, I think that's a complicated thing because most people in China uh, then think that Jesus has to be both good and bad, right? In order for him to be a Tao, he has to be two things at once. He has to be polar, right? He has to be somehow two things at once. And you know, he is hypostatic union, but, um, but he isn't both good and bad. So anyway, it's a complicated thing. Let's go to Buddhism. And I'm looking at my time and I show that I... Uh, I have four, five, or six minutes left. So Buddhism, um, basically you have two schools of Buddhism, the Hinayana or Theravada school and the Mahayana uh, school of Buddhism. And I want you to just uh, think about this person, Dhammur or Bodhidharma, Chan or Zen. Now, I, I know that you've all just had, and I watched part of it, a very fine uh, talk about Hinduism and Buddhism. So I don't want to dwell on this too much, but once Buddhism enters into China, it becomes something slightly different, right? We, it, uh, Those of us who study China say there are three Buddhisms. There's Indian Buddhism, and actually the Buddhists from, from what we think of as Nepal. So it's not, we shouldn't say India alone, we should say India, Nepal. But you have Indian Buddhism, then you have Indian Buddhism in China, and then you have Chinese Buddhism. Because China will, will take Buddhism into its its own cultural milieu and Buddhism will largely be transformed, right? Um, first, this is one of this is the only one of China's three teachings that didn't originate in China. Buddhism comes from Nepal, India, but 
It's called one of China's three teachings because it's so, and what we might think of as synthesized. That's a whole debate that's happening right now. We talk about Sino-Vatican uh, agreements and what does it mean when the Chinese government say, says that Catholicism has to be synthesized. That's another lecture, right? We can talk about that in another lecture. But, but when Buddhism reached China, Buddhism adopted Confucianism for its structure. So this thing called the Sangha, the Buddhist community, it, it copied Confucian hierarchical structures to create a Confucianized Buddhist community, a Sangha, especially in Buddhist monasteries. And then it borrowed the terms from Taoism because one thing that Buddhism really prefers is a kind of rejection of ultimate truth claims. There are lots of reasons it likes to reject ultimate truth claims, and that's precisely what Taoism does. So Buddhism loved Taoism and absorbs Taoism uh, into its, its, its sutras when they're translated. Certainly the core teachings of Siddhartha Gautama, the, the Buddha, right? The Buddha means awakened, the awakened one. So um, I think technically it's more appropriate for us to say the Christ when we talk about Christ, because he's the anointed one. Um, I know we, we say Christ when we're referring to Jesus Christ, but it's probably more correct to say Jesus, the Christ, the anointed one. And the same with Buddha. We, we would say the Buddha, the awakened one. His name wasn't Buddha. That was a title. In Buddhism, there are trillions and billions of awakened ones, uh, and they're all Buddhas. And so it, we say the Buddha. But the, 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 I'm looking at my time. Well, give me three minutes and I'll close out. Um, so fundamentally, the core teachings of Buddhism are the same, but they tra they're transformed in a, a, a Chinese form, right? So certainly the story of the Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama as the son of an aristocrat, some people say prince, he, you know, he's raised in luxury. He goes out with his charioteer. He sees an old man, a dying man, a sick man, and uh, someone who is dead. And he finally realizes, oh, my goodness, I will age. I will get sick and I will die someday. So he leaves his palace. He goes, he meditates under a tree called the Bodhi tree, the awakening tree. And he comes to a realization of what uh, he calls the Dharma, uh, which is consists of two fundamental parts. That is, there's no permanent self, right? No permanent self, first part. The second part is the Four Noble Truths. And this is the core of Buddhism, that all things are suffering. The word that, that the Buddha used was dukkha. It just means suffering. So the first noble truth is all things are suffering. The second part is that the cause of suffering is desire. We suffer because we desire things. And then the, 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 the third noble truth is the way to get rid of suffering is to get rid of desire. And the fourth noble truth simply is there are these eight ways to get rid of desire called the eightfold paths, right? And the, teach, the, the students, the inheritors of the teachings of, of the Buddha uh, divided into two groups. They divided into Hinayana, the lesser vehicle, and the Mahayana, the greater vehicle. The, the Hinayana would be those people who we call Theravadan Buddhists, the, the believers of the elders, and they taught that very few people could be enlightened, could be awakened. But the Mahayanas taught that everyone could attain a kind of awakening. Now, here's where I'll end. When Buddhism entered China, it was sort of forming its own way of being Buddhist. But when Bodhidharma, an Indian monk, went to China, probably the 5th, 6th century AD, he went to China and he founded a school of Buddhism called the Chan School. The word Chan means to sit. When 
when that form of Buddhism went to Japan, it's Chinese Buddhism, it became the Zen school. The word Chan is a Chinese character. It's pronounced Zen in Japan. So Zen is, is Chinese Buddhism practiced in, 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 um, in Japan. And it's a school of Buddhism that believes that you become awakened or enlightened by meditation. So whenever you think of the Buddhist monk or the Buddhist nun meditating, that largely was formed in the Chinese context. So you sit, you meditate, and then you come to the realization, and this is the big thing about Chan Buddhism, that we are all of us already awakened. We're already Buddhists, right? And that's a complicated, complicated philosophy. But Chinese Buddhism became more, I think, intellectually robust. When the, when the Catholics, I'll end in about a minute here, when the Catholics went into China and they encountered Buddhism, they considered Buddhism to be the most antithetical to Christian teaching. Interestingly, um, later, many, many Catholics, like Thomas Merton, for example, found Buddhism to be uh, profoundly aligned with, with Catholicism. Um, and I think, and then, by the way, Thomas Merton also said, but in its belief systems, it's not aligned. So even Merton, he said some of the practices of Buddhism are good, but not the beliefs of Buddhism. So let me just end um, and open up for questions with this. When Catholics first encountered the three teachings, they encountered something they didn't expect. They encountered a culture that had no concept of a creator, none, and no concept of a creation. All of China's traditional teachings held that reality was cyclical, not linear, and that there is no creator. There are gods, but in the Chinese view, they all sort of disappear after a while. The Dominicans, the Franciscans, the Jesuits realized that Confucianism was the closest one. When Confucius was asked, what happens to us after we die? He said, I don't know, and I'm not going to speculate. Let's focus on our life now. Taoism was rejected by the missionaries. Buddhism became uh, like a, like a, a, almost an enemy to the early Catholic missionaries in China. But they all saw that this eclectic issue was maybe the core problem, that Christianity was totally true. So let me just end, because I know I'm right at that moment. Um, but I want to end with this, an argument of one of my favorite theologians, Jean Danielou. I'm a fanatic for Jean Danielou. He was Jesuit. Um, he was brilliant, but he wrote a book called The Salvation of Nations. And he said this, quote, all these non-Christian religions, all these non-Christian belief systems start from man, but they only find their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ, close quote. And that, that is in a nutshell, the Catholic way of engaging in dialogue with all of these religious thoughts. There's a lot of good insight, but Jesus has to be the final answer. Let me just end there. Because um, I think I probably even went over. I'll end there and open up for questions. Thank you so much, Dr. Clark. That was um, phenomenal. What a wonderful um, overview of the three teachings for us today. Um, really incredible. So we will have some time for questions as stated. All right. So let's get started with some questions. And I see that we have one of our panelists, Elena. Why don't you go ahead and unmute yourself? Thank you. Um, Thank you so much, doctor. This is amazing. I spent some time in China and, and Japan, and uh, I think I need to start taking classes from you. Um, but I have two questions. 
Um, <clears throat> one is, um, can you say anything about this tradition of the warrior monks in, in Buddhism, in Chinese Buddhism, like the Shaolin monks? And the second question is, um, is there anything you could say about Korean Buddhism and how that sort of fits into what you were talking about, Chan and Zen Buddhism? Thank you. That is a fun question because the person I mentioned, uh, Bodhidharma Damo, when he went to China, uh, there are so many legends about his travel. I mean, one of the legends is that he crossed the Yangtze River on a, a little piece of bamboo um, and that he was able to kind of surf across the Yangtze on this twig and he landed and then he went in and then he founded a monastery, Damwa or Bodhidharma. He's called Damwa in China and Bodhidharma in India. And um, he founded the Chan Buddhist school and the school of Buddhism that he founded was founded where he lived, and that was a Buddhist temple called the Shaolin Monastery. So Chan or Zen Buddhism is connected to the uh, monastery in China that is where they practice martial arts. Type in Shaolin um, on YouTube and you'll have a ton of videos and you can watch, uh, you can watch movie after movie of these so-called Shaolin monks. And there is a, a great deal of legend about that. I mean, Damwa reportedly sat in front of a wall for nine years in a cave. He meditated so long to try and achieve awakening that his face and his body was emblazoned in the wall. According to the legend, one day, and I'll answer the question about the warrior monks in Korea, there's one legend that as he was meditating, he fell asleep. And he was so upset that he cut his own eyelids off and threw them on the ground so that he couldn't close his eyes and fall asleep again. And from his eyelids grew a plant. And then he took the plant and the monks put the plant in water and it was caffeinated. And that's the origin of tea. You know, tea is Bodhidharma's eyelids. But the, but the, the legend all revolves around this idea of sitting and meditating. And they realized that it wasn't quite healthy to sit for so long. So they began to practice martial arts. And um, so in Buddhism in China, uh, martial arts practice became connected to a kind of keeping yourself healthy while you, um, while you do your meditation. And they also didn't believe in using knives, like no killing. So they were, became famous for using staffs, just sticks, so they could fight people but not actually kill them. Um, but that, that's a nutshell. That's a very brief uh, kind of response to that. But as Buddhism traveled, I mean, it, it travels from Nepal and India, and it goes into Tibet. So Tibet is really where you find in the Himalayan mountains, one of the very earliest strands of Buddhist thought. And, and Tibetan Buddhism combined with a local beliefs called, a local belief called Bern, B-O-N. And so you see the hats and the horns and all of that is, comes from indigenous Tibetan belief. But then it went into China. And Chan becomes one of the dominant Buddhist systems, and then it went into Korea. And so what you have is Chan, and then Son and Korea, and then it goes through Korea into Japan, and then it becomes Zen. So you have Tibetan, you have kind of um, Indian, Tibetan, Chinese, Korean, and then Japanese. So you see this great evolution of Buddhist thought, right? So that is a kind of a very quick way to answer that. Hope that's helpful. Thank you, Dr. Clark. We're getting a couple questions, um, which we always seem to do with um, topics that are new to many people and certainly new to the ICC. And um, that is, 
What recommendations do you have for literature or further study reading for people on these topics, the origins of these three teachings? Gosh, I, I always think that anyone who wants to understand something, I mean, this is the professor part of me. I mean, we all need to read things that are edifying. So uh, people like Jean-Daniel Lu, I think his book, God in the Ways of Knowing, or Do a New God in Us, I almost think every human should read Jean-Daniel Lu's book, God in the Ways of Knowing. Ignatius Press publishes it. And it ends with a kind of beautiful summary. It talks about all these philosophical and, and religious systems like Buddhism, and ends with the, why should we be Christian? And then even more than that, and why should we be Catholic? And it's beautiful. It's one of the, in my mind, that book is one of the best arguments for being Christian in, in light of all these other religious systems. Um, I would read that. But I also, as the, the professor in me says, read the original text, read the Analects of Confucius, get a, a, a book that has a few samples of, of Buddhist dharmas and read those read the Tao Te Ching. The Tao Te Ching you can read in one sitting. Absolutely. The Analect you could read in maybe two sittings. Um, and then some of the Dharma, uh, the Dharmas in Buddhism, they're a little more complicated and you need some commentary. But uh, I would read the original text. And then finally, and I hate to do this, but I wrote a book called Catholicism and Buddhism. Um, and and uh, I know that it got a lot of rave reviews from, from Catholics and Christians but it didn't get some, it did, it got a lot of criticism from people who said that you can you can be Christian and Buddhist at the same time, because I argue the opposite. I argue that you cannot be Christian and Buddhist. Um, but if you want to, if you want to get this uh, kind of an argument, it's a very short book as to the differences, respectful differences, um, read Catholicism and Buddhism. Thank you. As a quick follow-up to that um, regarding the original text, do you have any translations that you favor? That's a good question. I, I always go to Penguin, the Penguin classics, because I I personally find that the commentaries and the uh, translators are quite good. So if you if you go to Penguin classics, Amazon, type in Penguin, uh, type in Buddhism, uh, what's the text of Dharmapada? It, um, gosh, why am I forgetting it? Uh, actually, if you look at my book, in the in the bibliography, you'll find what I think are some of the best translations. But Penguin, always Penguin is always good. Chris Latona, why don't you go ahead and unmute yourself? Hello, Dr. Clark. Thank you for your presentation. Um, you said early on in your presentation you were talking about the three teachings, and you said that Confucianism was kind of about a person's public life, and you said that Taoism is kind of about a person's private life. And you said, Buddhism is something there that I missed. I wasn't quick enough in my note taking. Can you go back to that and tell me what Buddhism is about? Yeah. So um, I love this question. And what's so fascinating is uh, <laughs> I get this question so often in my classes. And I always think these are my best students who ask that particular question. Um, Taoism talks about how we can be as individuals. If you read the text, it's a lot about how we can uh, exist in, in, in the world that we exist within. Confucianism tells us really how to succeed. But of, of all the philosophical and intellectual systems in China, only Buddhism tells us what happens to us after we die. So Buddhism 
specifically deals with the afterlife, or more accurately, the afterlives, because there is this thing called samsara, you know, reincarnation. So Buddhism gives you a way to think about death. So the Chinese saying is, be a Confucian to succeed in society, be a Taoist when society is difficult, and be a Buddhist when you approach your death, or especially when you suffer. Because Buddhism gives you a way to process the reality of human suffering and death. So that, that's, that's, the, that's the saying that you get quite frequently in China. Thank you. Um, I have uh, two people wrote in questions about um, asking this. What is your understanding of, I think it's pronounced qi, it's Q-I is how it's spelled. Um, and how would a missionary dialogue with Chinese native, natives adhering to this concept? So if you could just um, define what that is for those who are not familiar with that term. In th This is one of those questions that makes uh, someone who spends a lot of time thinking about it pause and try to figure out how to say it very simply. Well, let me do it this way. So in China's medical system, all humans are fundamentally animated by three things. Jing, which is kind of our essence. Shun, which is a kind of spirit. And qi, which is an energy that moves everything. So um, our spirit is our consciousness. Our jing, our essence, is kind of what puts our makes our body what it is. And our qi is that energy that moves the body around. Now, most Catholic intellectuals and missionaries, when they first encountered China's medical system, just saw that as not accurate. Um, but they never had a problem. It's not a religious principle. If you see the concept of qi as a, a kind of animating energy, it's like, for example, a fan. If you unplug the fan, it doesn't run. But if you plug it back in, it's animated by electricity. Early Chinese medical theorists just presume there's some kind of energy that makes our bodies able to move. Um, so you get things like Tai Chi, uh, where which is, and by the way, the word Tai Chi is actually pronounced not Tai Chi, it's Tai Ji, more like J-I, which means the great ultimate. But a principle is that Tai Chi animates the, this energy, this Chi. Um, it also invigorates the spirit, it invigorates the body. Qigong is a kind of method of invigorating the qi. So what, what is my own understanding of that? How would you dialogue? Um, in its core, it's not a religious principle. Qi is not a religious principle. It was just how they envisioned the body early on. Um, so in that sense, it was not connected to any kind of religious thing, but it has become that. Especially in religious Taoism, qi is very much part of a religious paradigm. So I would say in my mind, it depends on what that someone means by qi when they're talking to you. If they're just talking about Chinese medicine and the principle of the body being having a kind of animating energy, that's one thing. But when they talk about more spiritual forces, that's another thing altogether. And that doesn't really help you very much. But um, in my own my own sort of opinion is, I'm I'm when I go to the doctor, I go to a Western doctor, <laughs> so I don't go to a Chinese doctor. Uh, but I'm not insulted if I hear about qi. Um, but if I hear about it in a kind of religious Taoist sense, then then I know enough to say, let's let's interrogate how you think about this thing. Um, and then, too, I, this is the last thing I should say, even in, in, in Western um, 
scientific research, they have there are these meridians of qi in Chinese medicine that don't align with our nervous system. And I know MDs who have connected electro electrodes to meridians that shouldn't have a nervous system connection, but they connect uh, electrical pulses to qi meridians, according to Chinese medicine, and things happen. So um, for whatever, however you interpret that, Western medicine thinks about qi as still very much a question mark. Like there's an herb in Chinese uh, medicine that if you take the herb, it, you have all the symptoms of hepatitis. And, uh, but it goes away when the herb go, uh, when the herb, uh, when the herb sort of dissipates in the, in the physical system and Western scientific research still cannot figure out why you have hepatitis when you take this herb, it helps you sleep at night. So it's, it's an herb that's legal in China, but it's illegal here. So all I'm saying, there are still question marks. Um, but as long as it doesn't in, in sort of, um, enter into the religious realm, uh, I, I just sort of let it rest over there as a China, old Chinese medical principle. Thank you. Um, we'll just end with one question. I know we've gone a little bit over, so thank you so much for, for giving us your time, Dr. Clark. Um, but this final question, if you can, if you can answer it, I think it merits a talk in itself. And we will be giving a talk on the missionaries in Asia in our third quarter, but a number of people have written in. So I'll just go ahead and ask, but um, now that you've kind of given us the background of these three teachings, could you just quickly give us some insight into how, like what methods did the missionaries kind of employ or what could they latch onto in these, in these three philosophies to evangelize um, these people? I love that question. You know, that is my whole academic and intellectual life. I've ded dedicated my life to Christ and to the church's work in dialogue with, 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 with Asia and all, all but one of my books in some way revolve around the missions in Asia, especially China. And I love how Christians think in China. Um, their veneration for the Blessed Sacrament, for the Eucharist, is like nothing I've ever seen in my life. So um, there's something about the society. I, quickly, and I, I don't want to go too, too much into this, but for example, I've been at um, Mass here, and I go to Divine Liturgy, but I went to a Mass, and people were putting in, you know, a uh, 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 mouth uh, mints right after receiving Holy Communion to get ready for the social hour. And I remember thinking, you just put God into your body. And uh, now we're putting breath mints in? I, I just found that problematic. In China, uh, they use hand sanitizer wipes if, they, if, they, if they're to receive communion on their hand, if it's what, what's happening in that particular mass. The whole congregation passes around sanitizers and, and then they bow and make a profound gesture, respect, receive Holy Communion, and then they make sure there are no fragments. There's such a devotion. Um, so what the missionaries did is when they first arrived, they believed, well, the Jesuits had a belief that they assumed, Ignatius of Loyola assumed the goodness of people's intentions. That was the first thing. Assume that these people aren't just bad people. That's the first starting point. And then find where they're right and find where they're wrong and slowly um, pray and dialogue to move them into the right direction. 
So what they really did is they looked at the three teachings and they said that the first thing you have to do is not just assume that they're bad people. Assume that they're trying to get at it. And if you assume that, then it's easier to work with people. And the second part is don't be hasty in defining what you think their beliefs are. Actually take the time to read the texts. So my approach is always be affirmed in the gospel, be affirmed in in our faith, because it's true. But take the time to understand the points of view of the people you're in dialogue with. And then maybe, just maybe, you can start with some common points. And that's always been the missionary enterprise in Asia. Find those common points. And when you find those common points, say, we share this with you, but I have something you don't. And that is Jesus Christ. It's always that final light that illuminates everything else. So that's that's the system in a nutshell. That is wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Clark, um, for, for your answers this evening and also for your wonderful, wonderful presentation. Um, it was phenomenal. We hope you enjoyed this program from the Institute of Catholic Culture. Remember to download our app and share our online library with friends, co-workers, and family members. To learn more, get involved, and support the Institute's work, visit instituteofcatholicculture.org and visit us on social media.